HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Starting a restaurant can be agonizing decision and a lengthy process. Concept development, fundraising, finding real estate, lawyers, architects, landlords. Then you have to go out and hire staff, and then you actually have to do all the cooking. Working the line and even being embedded in a quality organization doesn't fully prepare a chef for the rigors and mental challenges of opening and running a restaurant. So why do it? Why do we do it? Why did my guest today do it more than once? Why do hundreds of thousands of people dream about it? Why not say, be a consultant with flexible and more realistic hours? Today's episode, like many others of the line, is about opening spots, Today is also a little bit about closing spots, but it's also about starting again and finding new avenues, directions, and culinary pursuits. It's about my guest finding a new version of himself, perhaps, and creating a new place in the New York City culinary world after being deeply embedded in restaurants in the most classic sense, as a line cook, a sous chef, a chef de cuisine, executive chef, and then an owner. Chef Chris Jackal has an extensive resume. He spent seven years with Union Square Hospitality Group with Tabla and 11 Madison Park. He was the sous chef at Morimoto and also worked alongside Michael White at Alta Marea Group as CDC of Afiori when he was awarded a Michelin star and three stars from the New York Times. In 2013, he launched his own restaurant partnering with Zach and Jeffrey Chatterau, a high-end Italian restaurant in the West Village called Alanda. But he didn't stop there. He also opened Uma Tamakaria in Chelsea, and there was a location in Gotham West Market as well. When it opened, Uma was the nation's first fast, casual-style eatery featuring fresh, customer-designed temaki, which is a cone-shaped hand-roll style of sushi. But in 2016, Alanda shuttered after about two years being open, and later on, Uma Tamakaria also shuttered. 
Jackal was named Eater's 2014 New York City Chef of the Year, and now he runs Kitchen Connect Consulting, which focuses on menu development for several concepts ranging from French brasseries to Latin taquerias, airport dining, and also there is an Alanda in Dubai. Today we're going to discuss working alongside some of the finest chefs in the world, branching out on your own, when to make the difficult decision to open and also a difficult decision to shut down, and how to launch a consulting restaurant business. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Eli. Okay, so we have a lot to cover. You've done a lot of things. I want to start off by asking, though, even though it's it's impossible in a cooking career to, to really cook everything, you have covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Tabla, Indian, Alanda was sort of an Italian with Japanese influences, Uma and Morimoto much more heavily influenced by Japanese. Sure. You do a lot of consulting now. So I'm going to just, first question, I'm going to put you on the spot. Can you define your personal style? Is there, is there a culinary uh, a lane that's rooted through all your styles? It's an interesting question. Um, I will say, and I've and people ask me what my favorite things to cook are or what my favorite cuisines are, and it's tough to answer because I love different things about all of them. Um, but I will say my, stylistically, I would say simple, Right, and it's it, it would be taking quality ingredients and treating them, you know, minimally, which is what draws me towards Italian and Japanese. Um, they're certainly my favorite cuisines to eat, um, while Indian is actually my favorite cuisine to cook. Right, I, I find it so just invigorating the the level of technique and the adding spices at different times and how drastically different the flavor profiles can be by such a little tiny tweak like adding the cumin after the coriander seed as an example or or anything like that so i find cooking that cuisine to be really really energizing and, and entertaining that being said i don't enjoy eating it as much as i enjoy eating japanese and italian um and i find that you know that cuisine was sort of created through covering up inferior products, right? That's not what it is any longer necessarily, but it, but that's sort of why it was there. So you mean like heavily spiced because maybe the meat wasn't of the highest quality? Uh, yes. Okay. So it was there, you know, and even the spicing through the spice trade into Europe, that stuff was there to cover up r rotting ingredients, right? Mm -hmm. To really sort sure. of hide the, you know, lack of quality where the Italians and the Japanese really focus on the quality and the freshness and, and the, um, the treatment of those ingredients. And that's what, so the, the, the short answer to that is I've described my cuisine and my cooking style as simple and sort of paying attention to the quality of the ingredient. You grew up in, in New York, right? I did. And mm -hmm. we were talking about your last name right before we went on air. I was trying to drill down the etymology of, of it, but your grandmother is Sicilian. She is. So was that a classic sort of grandmother who's from Italy relationship? Did she do Sunday cooking? Were you there in the house at her at her knee working and, sure, and sure. being put to work? So I am, for better or worse, right? My parents were divorced when I was young. I was just about, just turned seven. So I, um, you know, and I was left in a position where my mom, you know, hadn't finished college and like had two kids and was in her late twenties and was like, uh, right. So she went back to school. Um, and that left me and my brother sort of, what do we do? So we went to my grandparents' house every day. Um, and my grandmother was a live at home mom. It's, that was a, the norm then, maybe not quite the norm, but at least for my grandparents, it was the norm. Um, and she, you know, had a garden in her backyard and I grew up eating cucumbers that were picked from a pick from a plant and, you know, wild strawberries and, and fresh tomatoes and, you know, bell peppers and cider vinegar was a snack, not, 
you know, salt and vinegar potato chips as an, as an example, right? There was bell peppers in the backyard. So that was certainly influential to me from the fact that I grew up not eating McDonald's and can- foods out of a can, and which was the staples of the 80s and, and 90s. It's, it's thankfully not necessarily that any, any longer, well, at least to some extent in, in our environments. So you were you were able to experience that classic cooking, even though your parent didn't necessarily have the time and the ability to to cook dinner every single night. She was really busy. I'm curious if uh, your grandparents were strict, and if that uh, if that made it so that you know you were were you very studious? Were you sort of a troublemaker because your mom <laughs> wasn't around and you had a little bit of leeway? Um, uh, what was the young Chris like in, in Brooklyn? Um, I would say that I was um, early on. I was a stickler to the rules. Right as soon as I was allowed to to my own devices, things changed a little bit. Right, like by the time I was fourteen. I, was, I became a latchkey kid, right? I was old enough to sort of do my thing. I went to seventh and eighth grade. I walked home or didn't walk home, you know, from, from and, and uh, school was seven through 12 at the time. So, you know, the influence of the older kids and I, I sort of separated myself from the excelling studiously into writing a skateboard and, you know, you can imagine what those sort of things were like sure. at the time. Um, yeah, but, but, but I want I wanted just one more point. I, from... A studious, strict thing. Uh, my grandfather was a deputy inspector. He ran two police precincts in Brooklyn. So you can imagine what um, discipline was like in, sure. in, in that household. And, and so, what did that? What did that lead to? Like, what is? What was the teenage uh, Chris like when you were maybe got an inkling that that food would be something that would be part of your life. You ended up going to Johnson and Wales. So mm-hmm. you made a decision at a certain point that you were going to pursue sure. culinary school. Was there a, a first job or a moment when you said, I need to earn some money and you ended up being involved in food either because of passion or necessity? Sure. So, um, I always worked like even from a very young age, like I was stuffing penny savers and had a paper out, you know, when I was like nine, 10 years old, I have a feeling someone called child services on my parents now for something like that. Um, but it played back then. It was, <laughs> it's fine. It did. It did. Um, so my first job outside of school was at a grocery store. So I was, uh, you know, a, a, a leveler or like a stock boy essentially. So I was actively involved in leveling aisles and produce and, and sort of that was, you know, intimate sort of experience, touching, feeling food. But I was in 16, I believe. I, I mean, I remember the moment I was a ju- certainly early junior year of high school. And I was, as I had alluded to earlier, once high school came around, I was sort of fending for myself during the day. So I cooked a lot for myself and my younger brother. And I was making um, Ortega, Ortega taco mix, right? And I was like, the tacos are toasting in the oven. And, and I'm searing the beef. And like that little MSG cumin pack goes in. And I'm smelling it. I'm like, you know, I think I could do this for a living. So I went to my guidance counselor like within a day or two and said, "Hey, you know, Mr. Sclafani, I think was I think was his name. Um, I think this is what I want to do." And um, they kind of tried to talk me out of it. Um, and I said, "You know, this is really what I want to do." So I enrolled. I was, you know, as I said earlier, I was a little bit, I was studious when I was younger, and I sort of morphed away from being engaged, for lack of a better term, in high school. But I, that did put me in a position where I was in accelerated math and science. So I was a year ahead in math and science. Um, I was in honors, English and social studies. So, And I was a year behind in Spanish. So I knew everybody in high school because I didn't get languages, but math and science apparently worked. 
Um, so I, I, by the time my senior high school came around, I had the capacity to take nothing but electives. So I was only required to take English and social studies and gym. Those are the only things I had to take my senior year. So I explored going to Johnson Wales early. Um, they had accepted me in for a program to skip my senior high school and take the last of my high school credits at Johnson Wales. Um, I decided I was not mature enough for that, so I enrolled in vocational school, which is BOCES in New York, in a town called Westbury on, on Long Island. So I went from like 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. I went to cooking school. We made lunch for the school, kids came in, and then I took a bus back to my regular high school, and I took the three classes I was required to. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, went, I ended up going to culinary school in high school, so I was pretty... When I pick something that I decide I want to do, I, I, I work pretty hard towards getting it, um, which we can talk about how I ended up, you know, got the restaurants and got my own restaurant, et cetera, later on in the show. But when I decide I want to, I want to make a decision and, and I really want to pursue something, I, I work pretty hard to getting there. So once you get into Johnson and Wales and you're working there and you see what the next stage is, which is, all right, you're going to graduate, you're going to go out into the world and work at a restaurant. What was that like? Did you go to Union Square Hospitality Group first? Did you work at other places? Sure. So through, you know, we talked a little bit about the economic, maybe not the economics, but the situation my family was in. So, you know, money wasn't exactly flowing, for lack of a better term. So I, at Johnson Wales, I worked as always. Um, at night, I worked in a place called Roma Gourmet for a couple of years. And then I had the opportunity to become a teacher's assistant, a fellow, which was like 50% scholarship to schooling. Um, so I took that. So I did that throughout, and then I did practicum, which was what they called it, which was essentially me doing an internalized internship. So I worked for uh, the Johnson Wales Inn. They owned a hotel at the time. So I did my internship in their hotel property. Um, so I did that throughout college, and then getting into my first quote-unquote real restaurant, I, uh, my grandparents lived across the street from Larry Forgione. So I wrote Larry Ford Journal a letter when people wrote letters, you know, and I said, hey, I'm graduating from Johnston Wales. I'd really like to come work for you. Um, so he gave me the opportunity. I worked at an American Place for about a year and a half or so before uh, straight, out of, straight out of Johnston Wales. It's a good first job. Yes, it was pretty, <laughs> it was pretty solid. Um, it was a little, you know, to be f fair, I was a little frustrated by being, my mom forced me to go to college. Mm -hmm. um, it was a... If fine, if you want to be a chef, you need to get a bachelor's degree because when you're 28 and you realize this is what you want to do, you can go get a master's degree and get a real job. Okay. Right? Was, yeah. was sort of where we landed. How practical, mom. <laughs> well, she's an accountant. <laughs> um, so, but I was a little bit, I mean, yes, it's a great first job, but I, I could have gotten that first job at 18 and not 21, right? Like that's, and, and sure. at the time anyway, this was a business and I still, to some extent, believe that this is still that business where it's merit-based. Like, you do a better job than the guy next to you. It doesn't matter whether you're blue or green or orange or Afghani or Mexican or, or Italian. Or you work harder than the guy next to you and you do a better job than the guy next to you. Like, you're going to get promoted. And, and it, it's one of the only industries, I think, in this country that is that diverse from an opportunity perspective. And, and so I, I'm... Um, maybe this is a tangent, but I'm still a little bit salty about it because I would have gotten the same job working in the same place three years earlier. Would I have been three years ahead in my career if I had done that? I don't know. I mean, there's benefits to college. I'm not telling people not to go to college right now. Right? <laughs> like, but, you know, I, I had I had sort of ex explored and, ex and it was clear that school was not keeping me engaged, right, at least in high school. And um, and this was something that truly kept me engaged. And, and my mom finally signed on. I got my first... I don't know, report card or whatever, and it was a 4.0 at Johnson Wales, and she was like, oh, 
so you've been getting C's and all the teachers have been telling me that you're not living up to your potential and you're sleeping in their classes and you just got straight A's. All right, maybe I, maybe I should be supporting this. <laughs> so so all it took was really finding something that you just wanted to pay attention to. <laughs> and I, th- I think that goes for anyone, not just me, right? Like, you know, the the ability and the capacity for parents to allow their children to choose what they're passionate about, I, I think is... I do think culture is shifting to allow that almost to a negative extreme Mm -hmm. where it's sort of just, sure, do whatever you want rather than providing discipline and and that sort of thing. Um, But I, but I think that that's really the key for anyone in a, from a professional standpoint is picking something you truly enjoy doing. And yes, it's work and there are days you don't love it. And, but, but those, the fact that you enjoy it outweighs the fact, the the negatives and the hard days that, that make it difficult. Yeah. A good job can be, as instructional or if not more so than school because sure. you are actually practic- learning these practical applications in a real world environment. You're not sitting in a class saying, and how do you balance uh, a book, a checkbook? It's like mm-hmm. you are inside of a business and figuring out these right. things firsthand. So you you work for Larry Forgione at his restaurant and I imagine that that was really a, a pretty buttoned up work environment, right? Like probably pretty, uh, the, the constructs for what you did in the kitchen were probably pretty firm, right? Was there a lot of leeway in that Uh, kitchen? I've never worked in a place that I would classify as loose. (laughs) 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 Like it just doesn't, I'm not built that way. Well, I am, I, I'm in t-shirt and sneakers and I like that in my personal life. I like to be able to be comfortable and, and sort of react that way. But you know, I, I miss the days of the long white aprons and the and the clean uniforms, and, and I just think that, you know, we. Uh, the, the short answer is no. It was it was it was um, not loose, and and I, <laughs> I um I I I prefer it that way. I think that discipline is something people seek out from the hospitality industry. So besides the fact that you you like a uh, a very structured work environment, what were some other really great big takeaways from Union Square Hospitality Group? You spent a ton of time there. You worked at two large, sprawling restaurants that were both very well regarded and I assume extremely busy when you were there. Sure. So you kind of not to put words in your mouth, but you kind of grew up as a person. The first seven years of your restaurant career in in Union Square Hospitality Group, was it was it f- extremely formative, or uh, was there just little pieces here and there that were important? Sure, you know it's interestingly. I, I we can get to this in a little while, but I think I actually grew up officially as a person through Stephen Starr's company in Morimoto. Um, I mean, listen, I was twenty two to twenty nine, right? Like in New York City, and I became a sous chef at twenty four years old, right? Like I was an arrogant, cocky little. Ch- you know, <laughs> like yeah. a better term, right? I, I was, and that's and that's something that, you know, I don't know if I regret it, but it's certainly learned from it. And um, so, what did I? T- what were my takeaways? I mean, I I was fortunate enough to work for three different chefs, so that company at the time was really driven on creativity. So I I got to really sort of get a understanding and a look at three very different perspectives on food. And that was really what I was focused on. And when I say I grew up with uh, Stephen Starr, I left Union Square knowing very little about the business I didn't learn at Johnson & Wales. Um, because he, at the time, they shared very little with us, right? We were there to be executors and create, creative. And so I grew from a culinary perspective leaps and bounds. While I, I don't think I grew as a human necessarily and as a manager until after I moved on from the company, 
which I think would come, sound surprising to a lot of people based on their impressions of Union Square Hospitality Group and how they operate. Um, but that was my own personal takeaway. I, I, I excelled and, and grew exponentially culinarily, but didn't really change as a human until I moved into a little bit more of a financially, economically driven environment, which would be Steven Starr's company. And so do you think that that has to do with the fact – was there more transparency at Morimoto and the Steven Starr company? Was it the role that you took on there or was it the place that you were personally in life? Like what led to those changes when you made the jump to Morimoto? Sure. It's a little bit of both. Um, Transparency is the big one, right? You didn't – I was not – given access to the majority of financials in Union Square Hospitality Group, where I was given access to everything in Stephen Starr's organization. So that was really a position that I felt like I was was a weak point for me, right? Like, I knew I could cook at this point, right? I knew I could expedite. I knew I could run a busy restaurant. I didn't know if I could figure out how to deal with these and hitting budgets and numbers and payroll and that sort of stuff. So the transparency was really big for me. Um, the secondary thing was, listen, I, I was 29. I was entering my 30s. You start looking at life a little bit differently. Um... The, the third thing I will say is it was the, I don't know whether people want to hear this that have worked there, it was the easiest job I had ever had. Right? It was just, like, I, I it, it was easy. Like, I don't mean that to be, like, In cocky. In what way? It, I, the menu didn't change a lot. And, you know, it was structured in such a way that systemization was there. So it was literally, like, I just wrote a list every day. I did my job. I went home. Right? It wasn't... I was responsible for the prep team. I made all the sauces. I learned so much about Japanese cuisine and a true appreciation for it. But it was not this environment where you had the leadership driving hard to change and to get better and to, and to do it. And to better is not the right necessary word, but this constant move forward. There wasn't, there wasn't this constant mentality of like, okay, we did that yesterday. Let's do this differently tomorrow. Like it, it just, that was... It left me the time and the ability to absorb and to learn all of these other administrative things and functional things that I didn't necessarily have the capacity to deal with because I wasn't being driven so hard from a culinary perspective. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, in a lot of places, like, there's really only one lane, and that lane is you're a cook. Here's the goalpost for today. Tomorrow, show up. We're going to move that goalpost. Oh, you picked up 100 plates today and you did them perfectly? Great. Tomorrow, you're going to pick up those same plates, but you're going to do them five seconds faster and 5% sure. cleaner. Sure. You were opened up to a new avenue that allowed you to see what other pieces of the business looked like, right? Yeah. And it's not – at a certain point, some people want to grow beyond being a CDC and being just fully embedded in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. At Morimoto – was that where you started making decisions about what your own personal career could look like? Or were you still were you defining yourself still by where you were working or were you looking to maybe transcend the name of the restaurant and do your own thing? Sure. So I, I went to Momoto very with a very specific idea and that was to learn an Asian cuisine. Um, and I had decided it was going to be Chinese or Japanese. And um, I trailed it several restaurants on both both sides of that cuisine spectrum and it was the only one that I felt I would be proud of being in and that is and again I'm not gonna I will not name any names but like a level of cleanliness a level of 
organization, a level of professionalism just didn't exist in the other restaurants that I, that I experienced and went looking for that were open to someone like me entering the environment, right? Like a lot of those places, if I wasn't of their culture, that wasn't even an option. They might let me in the door, but you'd be sort of chastised or ignored or whatever it may be. So for me, I went in specifically wanting to learn a new cuisine. Um, and then the secondary thing was in terms of I had mentioned this earlier, when I like decide I want to do something, my goal was to open a restaurant. You know, it had been since I was 18 years old. Um, and so that, that goal hadn't changed. I, I will say that it showed me an appreciation for a cuisine that I was very unfamiliar with that I ended up really embracing and, and growing a, a, a much larger passion for than I anticipated. I, I figured I'd spend two or three years there like I did at all the other places that I worked in and learn what I need to learn from it. And okay, I'll so now I know how to use spices really well. And if I want to put spices in an American dish that I do, then I'll know how to add them and, and make them really pop and, and be familiar. But what I did really gain was this appreciation for the simplicity and the respect of the ingredients, which, you know, some people give me pushback that I did that at a place like Morimoto that does 600 people a night. Um, but they really, I mean, the, the rice comes in brown. It gets polished every morning for the sushi rice. The dashi gets made every single day. It's not like, you know, it, it's not the kind of environment where they, they sort of are slinging it because it's so busy. They, they really pay attention to the core things, and, and that was meaningful to me. You had a pretty sort of linear but upward trajectory. Like you started, and then you got promoted, and then you got promoted, and then you moved, and then you got promoted. Uh, when you reflect back on sort of the main three, four chunks of, of that growth period, do you feel like you you wrung everything out of that that you could have? Do you look back and think to yourself, I wish I would have done X at one of those restaurants? Or did you really feel like when you moved on that you had you had gotten pretty much everything you could out of that specific experience? Sure. So patience is something that I've worked very hard on understanding in the last few years. Um, and I will say that I think that I moved a little too quickly into management roles. Um, and I think I, I had a little bit of a period of stagnation in my own eyes that, well, based on my history and my resume, and a lot of people would disagree with that, I think. But um, from my perspective, I had a bit of a stagnant period where I, like breaking the mold from sous chef into chef's cuisine and executive chef took a little longer than I would have liked it to. Um, and, I, and my own personal reflection, I think, has to do with the fact that I wasn't confident in some of the core skills that I think that I had usurped by moving into management at, at 24. I mean, being a manager in a three-star New York Times restaurant at 24 years old is is an accomplishment, right? But but I think I missed the boat on, you know, some of the core skill sets like, you know, fish butchery or meat butchery or like, you know, whole animal and that sort of stuff that I would have gained if I had sort of not moved at such an aggressive pace with myself. Um, that being said, I have absorb that information later in my life, you know, I can certainly take a pig apart or, you know, I can, I can butcher fish without maybe, maybe not quite with my eyes closed, but certainly efficiently. Um, and all those things came truthfully, most of it through Morimoto because I had the time and the emotional and physical capacity to absorb new skills because it was the, the, it was such a less stressful environment than I was used to. After Morimoto, and you had been at all these places where I imagine, you know, we're talking dozens, if not even like a hundred people on the staff at some of these mm -hmm. really big restaurants. Yeah. Did you think to yourself, 
it might be nice to work somewhere where there's maybe two to three cooks on the line and you're banging out like 14 <laughs> dishes on each station or is that basically the question is is like do you do you love those massive organizations and is that where you always saw yourself or was there like a small inkling of uh hey maybe I'll go work at a, a really teeny sushi place or sure, sure. you know um I like structure right and frankly I found it through hospitality in the restaurant industry I didn't necessarily I had it when I was younger I you know but I I lost it through my teens and my early 20s and I and I sort of reeled that back in through that and I think with smaller environments it's much more difficult to sort of enter into the stream of structure I realize a stream and structure are sort of oxymorons but but like you you sort of enter into this environment where structure is the only way to survive right and it's, and I find in I shouldn't say I find I believe structure is the only way to survive anywhere but I will say that I craved something smaller after the fact and that's you know, iFury was also a massive restaurant, right? Like 40 line cooks and 14,000 square feet. And it was it was an absolute massive restaurant. Um, but once that was, you know, that time passed, I, I had convinced myself anyway, opening something smaller was going to be easy. And that was just be like, listen, I've been managing 40, 60, 100 people at a time. Like how hard could it be to manage 60 total people, right? This is like, this, we can do this. But what you don't what you don't think about, at least what I didn't think about, was the oh, there's the, like you know, the ice machine's not working. Call the maintenance guy, right? <laughs> or like, or oh, the fire department's here. Like, yeah, we got a guy to deal with that, right? <laughs> like, you know, and and I ended up, and I think this has something to do with Alonda's ultimate demise. It's not the only thing by any means. I've thought about thousands of reasons why I think it wasn't embraced by New York. Um, it certainly was embraced by the media. Um, is that I lost the fun in it, right? Like, and that is, and then, and uh, you know, that's retrospect, but I lost the desire to just cook, right? And it was because everything, I was a managing partner, so I was responsible for the health department, the fire department, the neighbor complaining about the noise, or you, you name it, it was the toilet overflowing, the plumbers, the contractors, the you name it, it was on me, right? So... While I was very, very supported financially, I, I, I was it was me, GM. Everyone it was every single employee came to me to get something done, and that was cool initially. But but I didn't really recognize at the time how much it was weighing on me to be pulling me away from the part of it that I do this. I could have done anything I wanted in the world, right? Like I, I it was taking me completely away from the stuff that I like to do, which also tore me away from the creative side of it and the and the even desire to do it because it was just this, all this stuff just like piling on the payroll and the and the, you know like the the insurance companies and what, whatever it may be just just constantly pulling me away from doing any of the stuff that I enjoy, and not to say that those things aren't important because they're more important than the food to be perfectly frank to some extent, but it really like emotionally pulled me away from it and that was the big lesson I learned from downsizing. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more with Chef Chris Jackal. Stick with us here on The Line on Heritage Radio. Are you enjoying this show? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Luke Griffin, and I'm the host of Bushwick Podcast. Each week, 
we share the remarkable stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in Bushwick, a special Brooklyn neighborhood that's changing faster by the day. You can find Bushwick Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. My guest today is Chef Chris Jackal. He's worked pretty much everywhere uh, along the uh, the sort of higher-end spectrum in New York. He was at Afiore at, with Michael White in Ultima Rea Group. He worked at Tabla and 11 Madison Park and for Morimoto. And after all of those learning experiences, he decided to go out on his own and open up a restaurant. Uh, Chris, let's talk about how you sort of formulated your team and your plan to open up that restaurant. Right before the break, you articulated a lot of the challenges with being the managing partner, which is, of course, as a chef and creative director, that's a lot right there. And then to take on all those other pieces. So when you were thinking up the project and you sort of took it out to market, how did you first uh, connect with investors? Mm -hmm. How did you find the space? And... How did you conceptualize what you wanted the restaurant to be? Sure. Um, so I, I, should, I guess there's probably preface this with I'm not necessarily promoting the way we went about this. Um, I, I just, you know, listen, it, it was, if it was an, if it was an epic success, then everyone would be stroking like, you know, like being, oh my God, you were such a genius. But, but it was, I, well, I don't think it was a failure by any means. You know, we were, we were critically acclaimed. We, I used my network. Right, I was introduced to someone, you know, very wealthy. That is a serial restaurateur, um, and we went in being really excited about something, and that's how we went. And it was the fundraising was, you know, frankly the easiest part, right? And I, I don't, and that is to date been fairly simple for me. And and that's just uh, my advice is to be passionate about something and use a network, right? Network, network, network. If you don't have You've heard the saying that your network is your net worth. That's real. So that's my first piece of advice. Um, the secondary thing was I had had a clear understanding of what I wanted to do. And that I think is where I can help the most based on this question. And that is people want to invest in restaurants because they're passionate about it. And they need to feel the passion coming from the person raising the money. And, and or the person creating the vision. Maybe there's a financial person putting the plan together for you, which I do recommend. Um but the passion is is what people are investing in with restaurants, right? This is an industry that is notoriously, or at least is, is known to not necessarily be the type of place that's going to make you wealthy, 
right? So people give you money to open a restaurant because they want to be passionate about it. They want a place to go and enjoy it and, and believe in. And, and if you raise your money properly, the money that's invested in you, it shouldn't be the life-changing amount of money from any investor, right? Like they should be investing in it and enjoying it and believing in it. And it shouldn't be a life-changing experience for them if it doesn't work. So the passion is, is sort of where it is. And, and I alluded to, to developing a deep passion for Japan and its food through Morimoto. Um, I, you know, had worked at an Italian-American place called Roma Gourmet in Providence for some time. It's still there, family-owned. Um, so I'd spent two years there. And then I had been at Ifuri and my, my, my grandmother is an Italian-American. So I was very passionate. And the more I spent time with these famous chefs, Michael White ate at Japanese restaurants. He went to sushi bars. It's what he did. And Morimoto, when we would talk about menu changes or Iron Chef ideas or whatever it may be, he, you know, I'd mention Indian and he'd sort of be like, hmm. And every time I'd mention Italian, you'd watch his ears perk up and he'd get more interested. And I was thinking, you know, what about these two cuisines made these two world-class chefs so excited about the other person's cuisine? Um, so not only did I find myself enjoying these two cuisines more than I did any other cuisine, it, I also saw these people, iconic, being passionate about it. So there has to be some sort of connection. And through that, my research and my diligence, my passion for these two cuisines continue to increase. And that, in my, from my perspective, is what translates into, you know, finding capital. And, and you, look at, you look at IPOs like, I don't know, WeWork is a great example. They're in hot water right now, right? But, but they raised mi- millions, if not billions of dollars based on the passion of their CEO, which could bite them long term, you know, <laughs> but, but again, this, this raising capital thing, I, I think people put too much capital, no pun intended, into the structure of the business and the pro formas and the, the sort of plan and how it's going to be executed. I, I don't, I don't think that's where investors, how investors give money away. I really don't. I think they believe in a passion and, and they believe in the excitement of it and that's where it goes. And all those other things are nice to have. And I'm not implying you don't need a pro forma if you're trying to raise money. But to be frank, those, that is just a meaningless piece of paper with a bunch of numbers on it. You have no idea whether you're going to do $1 million a year or $12 million a year. You have no idea, right? You have methods of where you should spend money and what's important and how and, and ways to market into a neighborhood. And But it's an industry that's still a passion-driven industry. And you watch people that are the best, the best chefs. I'd make the argument that there's a, there's a person that I would consider the best chef in America that doesn't have a restaurant. He probably won't ever have a restaurant. Um, and that's his personality. And it's, it's his, his lack of ability to translate passion into it. You know? and, and that's, to me, if we're talking about how to get there and how to raise money, it's a plan is important, a performance is important, a story is important, but that passion coming from the person that is the creator is how you will cross the finish line on getting people to give you that capital. When you opened, as you have said earlier in the program, it was really well re- regarded from a media standpoint. Mm-hmm. It got a lot of write-ups. A lot of reviewers were really excited about what you were doing. That must have felt awesome. Did it immediately translate to bodies in the dining room? Was there always a disconnect, do you think, between sort of critics and customers? Or did that occur later on? Sure. Um, I... I don't, I, you know, I don't want to hesitate to put words in other people's mouths, but I don't believe there were many people that came in that restaurant the first year that didn't leave saying the food was delicious. 
if any, right? I mean, we really delivered from my perspective on quality. What I think we got wrong is I think we missed the, uh, I think we, we didn't spend enough time on a marketing plan. And with that, you asked me about the reviews and changing business. Oh, I mean, the New York Times review, we went from doing $65,000 a week to doing $105,000 a week. I mean, this was not a dud restaurant. Like, uh, you can do the math on a hundred average check of $85 and doing $105,000 a week. Like, that's a lot of people. Like, that's 300 people on a Saturday in a 90-seat restaurant. I mean, it was jamming. Mm -hmm. and, and I honestly think that's where we went wrong, believe it or not. I think that after the media sort of died down, we hadn't garnered our neighborhood and our core clientele. We had all these people coming in, loving us, enjoying it from, you know, Wine Spectator in San Francisco and L.A. and reading the two times and being excited and coming in. And, and those, are the, those are not your people that sustain your business long term. Right? They all come in. They love it. And I'm not saying that, you know, some of them didn't recommend their friends and then them come back. But we did nothing to welcome our neighbors. And, and with that, you know, it wasn't a giant restaurant. And with that, you know, people trying to get in and saying, oh, it's a two-hour wait when you live around the corner. Like, there's another Italian restaurant around the corner. Like, I'm going to go there instead. You know, and that's their habits. And I think that was the, the biggest thing. And the secondary thing, I think, was the marketing. We got engrossed in the concept of it being Italian and Japanese rather than it being engrossed in it being an Italian restaurant that happened to taste different, a little different, or I, I would argue better than, than just Italian. Um, and I think that, you know, I had several people in food and that are not chefs or, or, you know, food writers sort of say like, it was really good, but it was a little weird, right? And it, like, it kind of wasn't, it kind of just tasted good, but it was the story that was curated and I'm completely at fault for that. Um, and I think that is really what, when you ask me what, what went wrong, I think those are the two big ones. Chefs, especially, but most entrepreneurs, in order to believe in yourself, you have to either have a true ego or just fake it and really feed your own ego and, and get to this point where you believe in yourself enough to solicit money from people. You have mm -hmm. to believe that your idea is going to come true. One of the hardest things is to look at something that you created and say, perhaps it's not working and and think about all those reasons and i'm wondering was there a specific day was there a week when you came to terms with maybe not come to terms but when you really said to yourself like i do not think that this restaurant is functioning in the way that we can keep going and we should probably have a conversation about closing it did that occur um yes it's this is not going to sound very exciting or passionate, but it was like the bank accounts. To be completely frank, right? Mm -hmm. Like you raise money, you if you put a decent plan together, then you had plenty of working capital to sort of execute that, and you get to a stage where you know you're we we had been feeding that bank account for some time, and at some point that changed, and you sort of look at it and you say, okay, what are we going to do here? You know, we are in a position now where this is going, the trend is going in the wrong direction. Um, we initially sort of made some, tried some different things, you know, a simpler lunch menu or, or lunch at all for that matter. And, you know, you know, maybe lost costly things trying to look to the neighborhood. And, you know, when you get to those stages, it's probably too late guys, right? Like just rip the bandaid off. Like I'm a firm believer, like this should not be, it will be, and is going to be an emotional experience for you and for whoever else invested in it, but it, it just can't be. 
Like you have to look past the emotion and you have to make a decision. And if it's not working, like, like everyone gets themselves in trouble for it. It's just, it's the numbers just don't lie, right? They just don't, you know, and, and that decision should be made sooner than later. But, but you will know instinctively that it's time. And, and we gave it a lot of time. I'm not implying that like, oh, three months after we stopped being profitable, we were like, let's pull the plug. That is not the case. But, but we tried several things and we discussed, you know, re-infusing some new capital in to sort of do some different things to the dining room or, but really when you're at that stage, it's probably too late. Like just throw it in and, and move on and don't be emotional about it. Were you simultaneously working on the fast casual concept when Alanda opened? Did it come later on? And how did that come to be? Since it's, we're talking about Japanese flavor, so there is some crossover there, but mm-hmm. from a perspective of the diner and just generally what the business model is like, it's it's the exact opposite of sure. Alanda. <clears throat> so I was working on them both simultaneously some, since before Alanda opened. Um, I didn't quite anticipate them opening as close to each other as, as they ended up as it ended up happening. Um, so simultaneous is the short answer, and I, I um, just look at I'm practical generally speaking, and you know Alonda was the passion project, right? Which is kind of terrifying to, to a person like me because um, I was always I always had health insurance and I've always saved for my retirement and like these sort of things that were like incremental and that are abnormal necessarily for our industry. Um, you know, I'm prepared to retire someday, you know, <laughs> like these are sort of things that I've always been sort of put together. And Alonda was a, a risk from that perspective, from a bit, from a business model and a, and a, you know, and this to me at least appeared to be a little bit more of a stable is not the right word. Cause it's a restaurant. Um, but it was a little bit more of a practical approach to, a problem that I didn't believe had been solved yet. And so when you put the business plan together and you found the space for uh, Uma Tamakaria, were you splitting your time? Did you hire someone as the sort of the managing partner of that? And were you just designing the menu? Like sort of what was your involvement in that sure. project? Basically? So, so I was a class A shareholder. So I was a, I was an owner in the, in the business but my, it was structured as a consult from a consultancy's perspective, right? So I was never the daily operator. I was never meant to be there day to day. I was obviously there a lot for the opening to just sort of ensure that quality was sort of where I wanted to be. Um, but that deal was structured for me to provide the tools that were needed to be provided and to sort of take a step back. And that is how it worked. And so, um, you know, it was open considerably longer than Alonda was. So I, I helped, obviously, after Alonda closed a little bit more, but I was never... Does, it was ne- my intention was to never be in that building on a consistent basis, and my deal structure was designed for that to be the case. Not to continue, you know, beating up on it, but you had two concepts. You poured a lot into them. Neither one of them are open right now. Sure. You've obviously been able to have uh, great success now with your consulting business, and we're going to talk about that in one second. But for someone who's either in the business and, and maybe looking to make that next jump, uh, what is that? What does that feel like? What is that actually like when you see things that you've put so much effort into and then they are no more? Oh, it's soul crushing. Like, I don't want to like just sit here and be like, Oh yeah, you just ripped the bandaid off. That sucked. Let's move on. I mean, it's like, it's horrible. Right. But, but you know, you listen to the greatest entrepreneurs in, in the world and, and, and all of them will sit there and tell you fail and fail fast. 
right? Like, because ideas are the easy part, right? Making the execution is the hard part. And if it's not working, like, like just that sucked. Like, pick another one, right? And and I, you know, and then I was consulting. I had someone ask me the other day how I ended up consulting, and I sort of just looked at it and I was like, well, that didn't work. I'm like. That sucked. Like, what do I do now? Right? And it's like, okay, do I go raise money and do it again? I'm certainly capable of doing that. And I could certainly accomplish that if I had made the choice. But I sort of said, like, you know, the 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 idea of doing the same thing over and over again isn't how I work either. Right? That's You can see that in my resume and, and the, the different kind of cuisines I've worked in. And so I just sort of said, all right, well, this, that, what do I, I know how to start an LLC. I know how to start a business. I know how to deal with these things now. Let me just go start my own business. I'm like, I don't need to raise money for this. I don't need to do anything like it. I have a giant network, right? And let me use that network and see if it works, right? And that was in, I formed the LLC in 2015, I believe. Anyway, it was certainly when Alonda was still open. And, uh, you know, it was initially the LLC was designed to, you know, the extracurriculars, right? Like Kikoman wants to send me to Napa to, you know, do some demos for them or Ronzoni wants to put my recipe on their website or, you know, whatever. I said, okay, so I'll, uh, um, my parents are an accounting firm. So I was like, okay, I'll, uh, I'll, um, I'll start this LLC. I'll, I'll have the money come in, right? I'll probably lose money and like I'll use it as a write-off and like that's what it is, right? <laughs> like, so, so that's, that's initially how I formed the LLC. But once it was done, I'm like, I have this LLC, I know how to build a website. I called a designer. I said, let's get a website built. This is my vision for it. I had business cards produced, and I just hit the streets. Like, I mean... <laughs> a lot easier to, cons- to start the kitchen consulting business than it was <laughs> for sure. to start the, the fast casual and the fancy restaurant at the exact same time. Uh, I think there is some sort of... P- people don't really have the ability to wrap their head around what a, a consultant does. It's such sure. a catch all term, but you do HACCP plans, uh, front of house, back of house consulting. You do menu design. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you focus on the most? Or if you do do a lot of all those different things, what are you really excited about right now that you're working on? Sure. Um, in my ever restless culinary perspective, I just got signed on to do a giant Chinese restaurant in New Jersey. Um, and, Listen, it's like it's a ten thousand square foot property. It's it's enormous, right? And it's a family. Um, I had worked with the son at a Messon Park years and years ago, and they reached out and said, "Hey, listen, you know they have three giant Chinese restaurants in New Jersey already. They're doing a new one, um, and that I'm excited about because it's a completely new experience for me, cuisine wise, culture wise. You know, that's what that's really what jazzes me. Um, so I get really excited about doing things that are different. I did a taqueria two years ago in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, also a big restaurant, um, and that was just okay. I don't have any idea how to nixtamalize corn or you know hand make hand press a tortilla. Like this is going to be a pain in the ass, but I'm also going to enjoy it. And so that's what I get the most jazzed about is as through consulting, I get the opportunities to continue to feel like I'm growing on a constant basis. Whether that be programming a rationale so that minimum wage employees who have never held a knife in their life can figure out a way to execute food in a fast casual. Or whether it's, you know, I have a, I have a client in, in the Tri-State area that operates a great deal of real estate in airports. Um, and that's like, they, they, where I found my steady niche business comes from is, is environments where they're not anticipating a chef of my caliber being open to learning how to program a turbo chef. Or like learning how to put a 20 item menu together with nothing but three microwaves and like some hot hold. Like they're like, what? And I'm like, well, this is fun for me. And they're like, well, really? I'm like, well, yeah, because 
I don't know how to think like this. Like I have to think completely differently than my training was to even for this to even remotely work. Yeah. It's cool because you're, you're applying everything you've learned, which from an outside perspective, they think you, there's no practical applications there. They're mm -hmm. like, you're a chef chef, right? Like, don't <laughs> you need a, you know, don't you need $80,000 worth of toys? And you're like, not really. Give me a deep fryer and I'll make you a really good deep fried <laughs> yeah, item if yeah. you, if you put me in front of it. And, and, and that's the part that I get jazzed about because it's, it's one of the reasons why I continue to have a business that works, knock on wood, right? Like this is, I'm, I'm four years into doing this exclusively and that is not quite as long a run as Uma, but it's pretty close, man. Right. And, mm -hmm. and this is this. So like for me, I think I business comes because the, a, I've developed humility through suffering and pain and, and failures to be frank. Um, but, the, but the other thing is like, I, I've always been excited about learning something different, right? Like I get, I, I lose interest, losing interest is the right word, but I, 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 I tend to lose focus on things once they are no longer challenging for me. Um, and this keeps me forever being put in new environments that are challenging and keeps me engaged. Do you find that the learning curve is is as exciting as putting it into practice. Like you say, you're saying, I don't know how to nixtamalize corn. So you're basically, you're going back to school, right? You're, mm -hmm. you're tackling all these flavor profiles uh, and, and creating recipes. And then once you get it to that point, well, you need to implement it. Sure. And then you need to go into whatever box they've built you and say, all right, I'm going to try to figure out how to make this work. Mm -hmm. Is there one side or the other that, that you find more enjoyable to the process? Um, I, my favorite part about what I do now is the opening, right? Because I get to watch it all come together. Right. <clears throat> and I've been, I've been fortunate that most of, I shouldn't say most, but a large portion of the work that I have been involved in, I get in early. So I'm there like, you know, kitchen design and, and meeting with the builders and meeting with the, um, contractors and sort of, you know, negotiating through it and this is the equipment and where it's going to be and how it's going to work. And then generally speaking, I'm around until the opening. Like we go through hiring a chef and, and the chef comes in and we work through it. And, and I try to, you know, insert what the ownership requires while allowing that chef to feel they have ownership of it, which is the really a fine line. Um, and then I get to get through the process of watching it come together and the team being there. Um, and that's a little... It's sort of sad for me sometimes when it's like I'm really enjoying the opening and I'm like a month in and I'm like, all right, well, I'll see you in a month. You know, like, like I'll be back in for dinner later, which, you know, is sort of, you know, the team thing is a big portion of what we do. So that's that's a little bit of a bummer. But but like watching it come together is, is really exciting. What's amazing is that you're you're basically doing all the same stuff that you would do if it was your restaurant, but at a certain point you're backing away and you have to turn over yeah. the reins and the keys to someone else. And part of that process is finding someone who continue who can continue to mm -hmm. execute at what you've put in. Have you found ever in any of your consulting gigs that uh, even after all the thought you've put in, when you turn things over, uh, it's still sort of Chefy, for lack of a better term, or do you have you been able to create enough systems so that when you turn it over to people, uh, it runs it runs pretty smoothly, sure. even without someone of your level of expertise there in the kitchen. Well, that's the that's the sweet spot that I found is my niche for the business. Right? Is you know I I helped grow a company in uh, New Jersey from 
two to five restaurants, and they just sold to another larger group in in New Jersey. And the the, the sort of catch was they could hire guys that were maybe sous chefs and promote them from within or chef cuisines that weren't quite ready to run, you know, four or five million dollar restaurants on their own. And I can get in there and deal with these things that they may be lacking um, and help them massage them through this into into an environment. So that's been really where I've landed on a lot of the things that, I'm, that I do. And, and so for me, I, I find that to be the best uh, it's sort of case scenario. It also is the cost effective, right? Like I... I'm a one-off and an expense for an operator long-term. You know, they can promote someone that's been with their company or, or that's a sous chef for considerably less than hiring someone of my skill set, right? And then, so, they, you know, all right, they got to pay for the outlay, but, like, maybe I come back on a quarterly basis and spend a week with them or, you know, I come back once a month and spend a day with whatever it may be based on what their individual needs are. But, you know, I found it works for the operators, um, and it, to date, anyway, it's worked for me. Chris, I really appreciate you being here and sharing your whole story, your arc, and telling us all about the places you worked, the spots that you opened, and now what your consulting business is doing. If people want to find you, if they've got more questions about uh, their own projects and maybe getting you involved from a consulting perspective, how can people find you and the work that you do? Well, I'm on all of the channels. I will say that uh, Instagram is the one I look at the most, Um, so... Uh, at C Jekyll J A E C K L E, um, you know that's probably the best one. My website kitchenconnect.co um, is certainly accessible. There's my information. That's that everything you need. There's a there's an about page as well as a a page to reach out to me directly on there. Um, I'd say those are the best channels. LinkedIn is also something that um, I was resistant to for quite some time, but I, I tend to be more active on it just from from a business perspective. It seems to be effective for me at the, at the moment so so that I'm I'm on pretty consistently these days um yeah cool thank you again everyone thanks for tuning in to this episode you can find this and tons more episodes on heritageradionetwork.org and of course you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. for a new episode of the line here on heritage radio The line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.